Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh and welcome to another episode of the Sacred Naissance dedicated to enlightening, enlivening and intellectual talks on all things Sikh. Today's discussion will be focusing on the Vadaka Lukara or the Greater Holocaust of 1762. Now for those of you who are not familiar with Sikh history or this particular episode of Sikh history, here's a brief rundown. Ahmad Shah Abdali or Durrani as he's also known had realized by 1761 that he had a massive problem on his hands as far as the Punjab was concerned. The Punjab was the gateway to the Indian subcontinent. He was coming through there, but every time he came to invade the subcontinent and loot it, the Sikhs would cut off his supply lines and his communication lines in his rear. Now, obviously from a military perspective, this was a massive no-no as far as effective generalship was concerned. He literally needed those lines as lifelines because they were the only things ensuring his army could survive in the subcontinent. The Sikhs were prominent guerrilla fighters, they refused to fight him in pitched battle. And ultimately this had seen the Sikhs divide from the Marathas as well. In 1757 or around early 1758, late 1757, the Marathas had entered the Punjab on the uh, egging of Adina Beg Khan. They had entered into an ad hoc coalition with the Sikhs acted up against the Khalsa, being thrashed as a result, and they had decided to leave a few token garrisons in the Punjab, which were effectively destroyed by Abdali a few months later when he returned. And as far as the Khalsa was concerned, as we discussed in another episode, our Sikhs cannon fodder, the Marathas desired to utilize the Khalsa as cannon fodder, the Sikhs wanted none of this, and so they had decided to move out of the way. When the Marathas shared their plans to confront Abdali in a pitched battle, the Sikhs refused. And for this reason today, the Sikhs are heavily vilified, but this was strategic prudence on the part of the Sikhs, who were wise enough to realize that Abdali could never be confronted in pitched battle. He was too technologically superior. He was too strategically superior, too tactical minded to be confronted in a one-on-one -on -one battle as the Marathas tried doing. And as history bears the result, as history bears witness, the Marathas were outmaneuvered by Durrani, who pretty much forced them onto his battlefield of choice and extinguished them to a man, crushed them briefly, ruthlessly annihilated them. This was pretty much the third battle of Panipat. Panipat being a decisive name in Indian military history for just about every conflict on there has been lost by any homegrown force. Now, coming back to 1761, 1762, Akil Das of Jandiala, who was one of Abdali's main sycophants in the Punjab, he was also an anti-Sikh uh, guru in terms of the fact that he had established his own guruship after Harpakt, Naranjana, and the Jandialas were heavily opposed to Sikhs, often copied Sikh traditions to make fun of them, and they left no stone unturned in persecuting the Khalsa. So, 1762 Around 1761, late 1761, the Dal Khalsa meets at Amritsar. There are over 60,000 horsemen now. The missiles set down. Baba Jassa Sangaluwalia is the president of the Dal Khalsa. Akal Takht is the senate of the Khalsa. The uh, Sikh Sardars as senators of the Khalsa. And the Missaldars as legislators. So there is this massive commune. Veteran uh, warriors are invited. Akali Nihangs. Quite a lot of... People turn out as well. The Sangat is there. Massive amounts of langar is prepared. And this tells us that a majority of the Sikh nation, the Khalsa nation was present. Everyone is sitting down. And it's opined that what policy should we follow 
to now battle against the Afghans, given that it's us versus them with the Marathas out of the picture, the Rajputs having cowardly fled, and Adina Beg Khan having died. And it was decided that first thing first, we need to cut off Abdali's source of information on the subcontinent, his sources of intelligence, and Akhil Das of Jandiala was identified as the primary uh, target. So, initially the Dal Khalsa sent him a missive, and it was basically a missive detailing terms of surrender. They pretty much told him, look, that we are opposed to you, you're opposed to us, there are innocent people caught in this uh, crossfire, what do you want to do? Do you want uh, to fight us? Because then many people will be killed, or do you want to surrender to us, incorporate your territory into our territories, pay us taxation, and we will give you the full rights of citizenship as long as you discard your pretense of being a guru. Akhil Das received this with great trepidation. He knew that the Dal Khalsa was pretty effective in combat. This time around, he dispatched another urgent rejoinder to Himad Shah Durrani from an earlier message requesting him to see to this new development in the Punjab. So, Abdali made his plans. Zain Khan, who was his uh, general, he ordered him to start making plans to target the Sikhs. And to this end, it was decided that they would effectively march to the Punjab and corner the Sikhs if it was possible. Now, there was one critical factor here which was necessary for Abdali to succeed. He required intelligence on what the Sikhs were doing. So, Essentially how the Dal Khalsa lived at the time was it was pretty nomadic, it was itinerant, it moved from one place to another, never staying in one place, always three days ahead on the march. On 5th February 1762, the Dal Khalsa, it was later gauged, would be uh, stopping at a place named Koprahira, located up approximately 12 kilometers north of Malerkotla in the Punjab. Akildas of, of Jandiala had his moles among the Dal Khalsa and they informed him of how the Sikhs were moving. Realizing that Koprahira was predominantly Muslim and high caste Hindu who were opposed to the Sikhs, opposed to the Dal Khalsa, Akildas formulated a strategy for Ahmad Shah who refined it while in Afghanistan and then decided to implement it. Essentially what the strategy was that the Sikhs would be divided. Men the fighting men, at least the warriors, the veterans, they would be out and about acting as reconnaissance units. They would be in small groups, while women and other, uh, you could say women, children, the elderly, non-combatants would be elsewhere and gathered in a mass group. They would only have a few rudimentary missile warriors defending them. So this being the case, it was decided that at Koprahira, Abdali, Zain Khan, Akil Das, and several others, including Bikan Khan of Malerkotla, would attack the Sikh non-combatants, effectively luring the Sikh warriors piecemeal into a conflict where they would be decisively decimated. Now, it was a solid plan, but what was missing here was the fact that the Sikhs had their own intelligence units. Now, Sikh intelligence units warned the Khalsa that there was some massive movement of Afghans, but given the fact that Abdali was repeatedly uh, invading the subcontinent, this was sort of not exactly ignored, but not exactly paid too much attention by the Sikhs. Anyhow, time was drawing nearer, and then February 5th arrived. On 3rd of February 1762, Ahmad Shah Durrani reached Lahore with, la with a large army, huge armaments and artillery. This suddenly 
caught the attention of Sardar Charat Singh Sukarchakia, Maharaja Ranjit Singh's grandfather, who had this relate to Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgarhia and Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia, who was the primary president of the Khalsa Panth at the time of the Khalsa Republic. Ramgarhia, uh, realizing what was going to happen, took great pains to effectively forewarn other Misaldars of what was coming over. This was also the case with Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia. Now, this was before they had their little or in many conflicts going on. Nonetheless, these two united and all other missiles followed suit to start fighting. What the Sikhs actually wanted to do, what they desired to do, was they wanted to move their women folk to Bikaner in Rajasthan for safety. Ahmad Shah, however, having realized that this was going to be their plan, instructed Zain Khan to actually march from Sirhand and keep the Sikhs preoccupied till he arrived. Bikan Khan of Mler Kotla reinforced Zain Khan. There were uh, many, many disparate groups of Muslim mercenaries in their forces. We had Georgians, we had Turks, we had Afghans. We had a massive uh, melting pot of various Islamic cultures come over in the name of Jihad to slay the Sikhs. Another thing which was in Ahmad Shah's favor at the time was the fact that one, the Sikhs had failed to realize what he was going to do. They hadn't paid too much attention to their intelligence. Secondly, Punjab was socially fractured. All the non-Sunni Muslim peasantry and all the lower caste Hindus, they effectively supported the Khalsa. They wanted the Khalsa to rule over them. But on the other hand, the higher caste Hindus, the Brahmins, the Rajputs, the Purbias, and the Muslim elite, they were opposed to the Khalsa and wanted it slaughtered. Now, these elites and all these uh, higher castes, coincidentally, were actually located in Koparahira, near Mler Kotla, where the Sikhs decided to stop before they moved on to Bikaner. Sikh reconnaissance uh, wings spread out, and this was effectively, effectively the signal which Ahmad Shah needed to attack them. So, while he was still marching from Lahore, Zain Khan slowly with Akil Das spread their forces out around the Sikhs, who were unaware of what was happening in their very rear. Now, given the fact that this was happening in the early hours of dawn, Sikhs had woken up, they were doing their nithanam, there was no real concern as to what was going to happen among the Sikhs, because they, even though they knew that Abdali was on the march, they didn't know how close his forces had arrived. So in the early hours of dawn, we we're actually talking just when the stars are in the sky. That's when the first cannon shot was fired. Zain Khan with 20,000 of his men and our artillery opened fire on the Sikhs and dispatched his warriors in among the non-combatants to slay them left, right and center. And this was the first signal for Sardar Charat Singh Sukarchakia, Sardar Bagel Singh Roda Singhia, Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgari and Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia and their missiles that they had been ambushed and it was now time to adopt a desperate strategy for real desperate measures. So effectively what actually happened was that the Afghans, while slaughtering the Sikh non-combatants, also spread out in a circle around them. This circle allowed them to effectively rotate and just keep on killing the Sikhs in droves. That is another factor that all the Sikh non-combatants were armed and fought as best as they could before the missiles arrived. First one on the scene is believed to be Sardar Charat Singh and the Sukarchakia missile. They broke the circle and went in with heavy losses inflicted on the Afghans. 
This is not to say that the Sikhs left unscathed, they suffered even more losses given that they were attacking an already well-armed, well-prepared force and then all the other missiles followed suit. It was finally decided by Sardar Jassa Sangalwalia as the primary commander-in-chief of the Panth to form a circle again around the non-combatants and fight in a rotational formula. This was quite different to what Sardar Charat Singh Sukhachaki initially suggested that wait a second what we do is we form a square-like shape so on all four corners we can keep on fighting the Afghans. Jassa Singhaluwalia, however, had another issue on his mind, which was mobility. Charat Singh Sukarchakia's stratagem would, would compromise uh, their mobility. The Sikhs had to keep on moving. So while the surviving non-combatants were hush, uh, ushered forward by the missiles, the missile darts would be around them, fighting, 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 and rotating, fighting, and rotating. The missile forces would be spinning like a clock around the moving non-combatants. And of course, this would draw the Afghans around them. The essential plan was to keep ahead of the main Afghan body so they could keep on proceeding without being fully enveloped on all sides. This was the Sikh plan. Again, the Sikhs never lost their morale. They kept on fighting even though they saw their own families butchered before their eyes. They turned their wrath into confidence, into encouragement to keep on fighting for the Khalsa way of life, the Khalsa Republic. Even when Ahmad Shah himself arrived with up to 20 to 50,000 more reinforcements, the Sikhs kept on fighting and fighting, fighting while moving and moving while fighting. This is how Ratan Singh Pangu has described it in the Shiri Guru Panth Prakash on, a, on the authority of his father and uncle who had taken part in this battle. The way this strategy worked was that the Dal Khalsa acted like a hen and the non-combatants were like the young chicks covered by the hen's wings. This is just a metaphor for how this strategy worked. Every time Ahmad Shah and his warriors broke the Sikh cordon, the Sikhs rushed to plug any gaps and kept on fighting, even if it meant they died. The reality that confronted Jassa Singh as commander was that he had to keep on fighting, he had to save as many people as possible, and at the same time, movement while being necessary, he could not allow the waste of resources and manpower and saving those non-combatants who fell to the Afghans alive. There was no point in dispatching, you know, limited resources to try save them while the Sikhs, while the majority of the Sikhs were actually surviving. So the Sikhs marched towards Barnara like this, fighting and fighting. Whenever they entered any village, the higher caste Hindus and the Muslims turned on them. They invited the Afghans into the villages to slay them where the Sikhs were resting. They essentially joined the Afghans in hunting and butchering down the Sikh woman, raping the Sikh woman and butchering the Sikh children and the Sikh elderly. By evening, the Sikhs reached Barnala and there there was a big river where they, a big body of water actually, which they had first, uh, which was the first time they'd come across water that day. So the entire day of 5th February 1762 from morning till evening was spent fighting. While the stars were in the sky, the slaughter had started then. Until the sun set, the fighting kept on going and going and going. It was here that they stopped to quench their thirst. The Afghans too stopped. After this, the battle was resumed. The Sikhs managed to fight off the Afghans. And Ahmad Shah marched towards Amritsar to destroy it. Knowing that if he pursued them in those deserts of uh, Barnala, Bertinda, they would lose him, probably ambush him. 
and what's more, his forces were tired and he could easily be ambushed if there were more Sikhs waiting for him. Now, Sangatji and the listeners, imagine what the scene would have been like at that time. So we have the red Punjabi dusk. We have the soil of Punjab flooded with red blood. We have bodies of Sikhs lying for kilometers around. It's estimated that up to 50 to 80 kilometers you could find the body of a Sikh. And in among them you have children walking around, crying for their mothers, their fathers. You have shell-shocked individuals just standing there looking in the empty dark, unable to make sense of what's happening. And in among those, you have the Sikh leaders, the Sikh Sardars, the Sikh Misaldars, walking around, tearing off the strips of their turbans to make bandages for the wounded, collecting the children, locating survivors. And it was during this time that a fatigued Baba Jassa Singhaluwalia sat down on a cart. Now, Jassa Singhaluwalia, while he had been fighting his adopted son, if I remember correctly, whose name was Gurbachan Singh or Gurbaksh Singh, Gurbaksh Singh probably, Gurbaksh Singh came to him and requested in the midst of the battle that Babaji Jathedarji, please retreat with your family. Because Jassa Singh's wives and two daughters were also fighting the foe at the forefront, slaying them left, right and center. And Gurbak Singh had this thing in his mind that if his adopted father is Jathedar of the Qom escaped, as president of the Qom escaped, he could start the crusade anew against Abdali. But Baba Jassa Singh refused, being in the midst of the battle, slaying as many Afghans as possible, very nearly slaying Abdali himself and directing the battle from the front. Now, this was true leadership. And it was during such a dark period in our history that that bloody day, Baba Jassa Singh is sitting down, the winds of Punjab are moaning around him, there is blood at his feet, he's drenched in blood himself, up to 38 to 50 wounds cover his body, and he calls over a Granthi. And the Granthi Singh asks what he can do for him. And he tells him to start Nitnam. And when the Granthi starts his Nitnam, the Rehra Saab, the first verse says, Dukhdaru Sukhrog Pya Jasukhtam Na Hoye. And when he recites this from Baba Nanak's pen, there are cries of Jo Bole Sonehal throughout the surviving Sikh camps. And suddenly, suddenly the Khalsa arises. There are tears in every eye. There is a Nihang roaring that all the Firth has been burnt away and the real gold stays behind. That the Khalsa as the true gold has survived. That it has been tested and the blood of its martyrs will awaken it to history and it would secure a sure footing against the Afghans. And Sikhs are hugging each other. They're kissing each other's faces. They have tears in their eyes that not only have they survived, their pain has made them stronger. Why? Because their Guru, Baba Nanak, says, Pain is the panacea for all ills. And so, after this battle, almost a year later, after conquering and subduing the Brars, the Dal Khalsa is back at it again and Abdali is forced to retreat from the Punjab. What a magnificent victory! that it's believed that around this time the population of the Khalsa ranged from somewhere around 150,000 to maybe 300,000. And we are talking upwards of 20,000 Sikhs killed that day. In one single day, it's believed Ahmad Shah Durrani slew over 50,000 Sikhs. And these weren't combatants alone, 
a majority 80 to 90 percent consisted of non-combatants and while there is this phenomena now that it's being constantly conveyed on social media that the Sikhs deserve this slaughter because they betrayed the Marathas it must be noted that Sikhi doesn't believe in this inimical past karma or you know this uh, regressive effect of karma a Sikh is someone whose karma is decided in this life as a consequence of his act of their act so the Sikhs had wisely refused to battle Abdali and be destroyed for the Maratha's sake and as callous as this might sound, the Vadakalukara, while slaying, while destroying most of the Qom at the time, did not fully extinguish the Qom, which arose once again to defeat Abdali and chase him out from the Punjab. After this, Abdali would never be a superior force on the subcontinent. The Sikhs would see to it. And while his grave says that the din of his conquests deafened the known world, Someone should have added underneath, it only convinced the Sikhs to turn a deaf ear towards his noise. Because seriously, they, our forefathers, our Jathedars, our Misaldars, our Sardars turned a deaf ear to whatever was being said about him. They did not allow his fear to shake them, to make them fear his prowess, his strategic and tactical prowess. Rather, it convinced them that they had to subdue him and crush him and crush him they did. The way this can be summed up in a poetic expression is that a band of fakirs pretty much destroyed one of the mightiest powers in the world. Nothing new for Sikhs given that Guru Gobind Singh took on the Mughals, Baba Nanak took on the Mughals, Banda Singh Bhadda took on the Mughals and Rajputs. Nothing new for the Khalsa. Many a mighty power had already fallen to them. Abdali was nothing more. But in today's time, the Vadaka Lukara has become an event which we glorify, which we worship. Now, while there is nothing wrong with this, let's not become too excessive in our passions, because even today we can derive lessons from the Vadaka Lukara. What we want to focus on here at the Sikh Renaissance are the leadership lessons we can derive from the Vadaka Lukara. Now, how this started was that when we released our poster for writing the Holocaust, this particular episode, a close friend of mine who actually once served in the Australian uh, Special Forces, he's published a book, and we were talking about this book, and I sent him the poster, and he said while the aesthetics were good, he would like us to focus on the military leadership lessons along those lines. Because those very same lessons can be applied to real life. Now, Sikh history is full of such innumerable, priceless examples of great and mighty leadership that today when we say we are lacking leaders, we should also be saying that we haven't studied our history properly or we haven't studied our history, which is proper history. Now, what lessons can we derive from the Vadaka Lukara? Many lessons. Now, regarding leadership... There are a few lessons I'd like to share with you, which is from my own perspective. Now, let's just remember here that the stakes in a military conflict are high, but stakes in the private world and the non-military world are also high. Yes, there's the difference that in the military world, if you fail, you die. Most of the times, in real life, you can start again. Nonetheless, it's the spirit, it's the land. Now, first thing first is, let's just 
take the example of the Sikh Sardars and Jathedar Baba just a single Uvalia. What made them so effective? And I guess lesson number one would be their uh, military structure, their institutional structure. And that would predominantly be they trained like they fought. Now, people train to fight. We see it all the time. We see it in the military. We also see it in the entrepreneurial world. They train for conflict on the grounds that they're going to be ready to fight. Except what reality is that there's an old saying, you should fight like you train. So if you train effectively, you fight effectively. However, if you train like you fight, that's a whole different range of things. What we are talking about when we are saying train like you fight is essentially you decide what the stakes are, you decide how desperate you are to obtain them, and then you train from that starting point. Now for the Sardars, survival and spread of Sikhi and the Khalsa Republic was their predominant chief aim. So they trained to acquire that goal. And here they had passion, they had spirit, they also had intellect and cold-blooded strategicness. What I mean by this is that they actually trained like they fought. So what they were fighting for, for Taram, for the survival of their Taram, for the proliferation of their politics, and for this very reason, they trained like they had nothing to lose. They trained to fight like they had nothing to lose. Death was no big matter to them. It's pretty different now. But then self-preservation, even though it was their number one priority, if they had to sacrifice themselves for another, that was an effective victory for them. And this brings us to another lesson, selflessness in leadership. This is one of the ability... This is one of the 11 principles of leadership, selflessness, integrity. At a basic level, selflessness refers to the concept of going without so that another person does not miss out. This is the opposite of what we might instinctively do in a survival situation, but comes naturally when we feel responsible for the health, well-being and benefit of another person. Now these Sardars, they cultivated the image of parents. A parent will go without for a child these Sardars were ready to sacrifice their lives for the Khalsa Panth. This was their dedication to Sikhi. Now, when they had such selflessness, they built trust among the rank and file and the non-combatants. And the result was that the entire Khalsa Panth was motivated to pursue their policies because they, the Sardars, looked after them and their interest. Selflessness motivates the group. The leader of the group in turn is motivated by the knowledge that when the entire group is being looked after, they will benefit as well. Now, in military terms, there is a principle called Commander Silly Jack. It's an acronym. So. Let's just start from the top in serial order of Commander Silijak. Courage, C, is a virtue associated with heroes performing brave deeds and this will always be so. It was pretty brave of the Sardars to do what they did. As a leadership principle, it's different. There is no reason why leaders can't perform brave deeds. But if they're being brave only in the face of danger and not in front of the people they're leading, something has effectively gone wrong. 
Leaders are frequently asked to do things they may not agree with or want to undertake. Some leaders will follow a higher direction without question as they might not want to incur the wrath of their superiors. Good leaders though will show courage and wisely challenge directions, orders and guidance. Strong leaders have the best interests of their subordinates in mind. They're also courageous in their decision making and do not take the easy option when dealing with subordinates. This is effectively what Jassa Sangaluwalia was. He was courageous. In the middle of the battle, he was ready to sacrifice his life and he actually chastised Sardar Gurbak Singh for even thinking of asking him to retreat. Now, M. Motivation. Motivation in a good leader has two forms, self-motivation and group motivation. These are interlinked, by the way. Self-motivation is what keeps a leader going in both good times and bad. At a basic level, this means keeping physically and mentally fit. The Sardars were always physically and mentally fit. This is what our Rath Mariada is geared towards. That we learn Shastar Vidya, we keep fit all the time. And how do we do this? By having a routine that gets us out of bed. A purpose to live for, which allows us to wake up early and go to bed early, well prepared for the next day. A passion for life. Leaders strive to accomplish a long-term result, not just a short-term performance. They do this to maintain a positive outlook that keeps them focused on developing the organization or institution in their charge so they can eventually pass on a group that has sustained or improved its capabilities. We actually see this in Sikh history. Sardar Kapoor Singh welded the Buddha Dal, Tarna Dal together. He also welded disparate factions of the Panth together. He passed on a group with improved capabilities to uh, Baba Jassa Singhaluwalia, who in turn actually improved these capabilities even more, refined them. So basically, Panthak leaders from Baba Banda Singh Bahadur onwards always worked to ensure that Sikhs as Sikhs improved over time. They never regressed or remained static in their Sikhi. The example set by such leaders has the effect of motivating those around them to achieve and eventually surpass the standards that have been set. Now, amazing, isn't it, that the Khalsa non-combatants in the Vada Kalukara actually rushed to defend themselves? And why? Because they saw that their leaders were doing the same. That their leaders were defending them and it made sense for them to defend their leaders. So they were motivated by their leaders. And what's important here is that each and every member of the Panth back then actually felt they were a member of the Panth. You know, they had a stake in the Panth. This is something we are lacking today. But at that time, leaders were smart enough to motivate Sikhs that they were part of the Panth, they had an equal say in the Panth. This was the miracle of Baba Nanak, that he envisioned a fraternity which was equal in all respects in deciding the policies of the Panth. The leaders were only a voice. Motivation lights the fire, consistency builds an inferno. Banda Singh Bahadur, Nuab Kapoor Singh, Baba Jassa Singh, Mata Sahib Kaur, Mata Sundar Kaur, countless more Panthic leaders. They motivated the Panth, they lit the fire, but the Panth through consistency built itself into an inferno. Then we come to decisiveness. This is a quality any good leader must have. If they don't have it, they're in the wrong business. There it is, the blunt fucking truth. If you don't have decisiveness, you can't be a leader. To enable good decisions to be made, leaders must consider all the facts and knowledge at their disposal. Now, how to do this? This is done through what is known as ODA in military terms. So ODA is O-O-D-A. Observe the situation. Orient yourself towards cleaning the full picture of the situation. 
direct yourself to forming an effective plan and A is attack, carry out that plan. So this is one of the main keys of decisiveness, order. This, however, does not mean that leaders must come up with every answer themselves. They have a team for a reason. Baba Jassa Singhaluwalia had the missildars under him and the sardars. And the sardars had their own missildars under him. So there was an excess down here in hierarchy. So the leaders were being given information. And at the same time, as leaders, they weren't the type who would say, look, just we will give you the solution straight away. They would also ask others, what do you think? What do you think we can do? How do you think we can overcome this? So they actually are relying on others, honing others into becoming leaders themselves effectively by challenging them to refine their expertise, knowledge and possible answers to whatever issues that are arising. Once the leader has all these inputs, they're now in a position to make a decision. But then there is the time factor. Frequently, a leader must make a decision without the opportunity for consultation. Yeah, this is reality. Who was Baba Jassa Singhaluwalia going to consult with? He wasn't going to consult with the whole panth when the panth was being decimated. He had to make a quick snap decision and he did right on the spot. Now, as I mentioned, a good leader mentors and develops subordinates involving them in the decision-making process. He looked around, he asked for any uh, possible recourses. He was told that, you know, we could, uh, you know, just immobilize ourselves and fight them off. He decided, look, no, the stakes are high. My role as president, this is what I'm saying, we need to keep on moving. He had to make the decisive decision straight away. The team should have confidence that the leader will make a decision with their best interests at heart and the leader should be confident in their team's abilities and trust. Now, of course, the Khalsa Panth, as a team, they had enough trust in Jassa Singhaluwalia that he would keep us going. We would march towards safety. And Jassa Singhaluwalia himself knew that this trust was in him, so he had to effectively do something to not lose that trust. And ultimately, what happened was he decided we need to keep on moving. And even though so much of the Panth was slain, at the end, Jassa Singhaluwalia was never blamed for his decision because his decision probably saved many lives than it cost. The Panth kept on moving ahead of the Afghans. Now, another main ingredient of being an effective leader, responsibility. Responsibility is part of the job of a leader and must be practiced. Human nature, however, pushes us to avoid it. And this is why Baba Nanaka Gurbani says that, you know, we need to take Jumevari. We must accept Jumevari in order to grow as humans and persons. Responsibility. If we are to learn from our mistakes, we must first recognize we have made a mistake. It is easier to blame another. But an effective leader or a respected subordinate can provide clarity when we mess up. We must treat it as an opportunity for self-reflection. Responsibility for the well-being of an institute and organization, and in this case the panth, drives our motivations and the decision-making process as leaders. A leader must be responsible for the actions of the group. And own the responsibility for a group is to allow subordinates the freedom to make mistakes. So one of the consequences of you know being responsible is allowing your subordinates to take responsibility for their own mistakes. And then to fix them. And then to own any possible fallout. Of course, this is hard to practice in an operational environment, but with discipline, it can be practiced in training. And this is one of the main reasons why we're failing as leaders, because our Sikh leaders today do not have much responsibility. In this way, a leader becomes responsible for the development of the organization and the successes and mistakes made along the way. So effectively, what I'm saying is that Baba Jassa Singhaluwalia took responsibility at the time, post Vadaka Lukara, the Sikhs had that one-year reprieve before they attacked Abdali. 
they surely sat down, the Dal Khalsa sat down and asked itself what went wrong. Did their reconnaissance unit spread out too far? Did their communication lines spread out too much? Did their intelligence fail? Did we fail to comprehend any intelligence between the lines? These were questions which would surely have been asked and responsibility taken for failures. And through this, they would have refined themselves to avoid further such massacres. And again, we turn to selflessness at a basic level. Of course, it refers to the concept of going without, as I've mentioned before. But selfness, selflessness in a leader is related to another aspect as well. Now, all the Misaldars and the Sardars that day, the primary Sardars, they had families who were killed in the Vadaka Lukara. These families were often butchered before them, but they refused to be brought down by this and continued fighting for the Panth. Now, Baba Jasa Singh Aluwalia, Baba Bagel Singh, all these uh, Shahids who actually died in the Vadaka Lukara fighting, all these warriors, they were related by faith but not by blood. They probably did not even know who the next Sikh was who they were fighting for. They weren't related, they weren't neighbours, but still, nonetheless, they took that decision to keep on fighting for the Panth and this was their selflessness. And I mean, today it's important to note that I'm a Sikh, you're a Sikh, we don't know each other, will we fight for each other? Or if I am a Sikh and I see you dying as a Sikh, would I just leave you there? Or would you leave me there? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves if we are to become effective leaders. Then we come down to integrity. It's a value we look for in everyone we meet, but it's a primary virtue for all leaders. The leader achieves integrity by being accountable at all times. In the first place, an individual must be true to the standards they expect their group to uphold, whether these are physical, technical, or ethical. At the organizational level, a leader must be truthful. He or she must strive to keep the group appropriately informed at all times. When information is of a need-to-know nature, a good leader is clear about this and might explain the reasons for this and promote an understanding that this is a requirement. When making unpopular decisions, the leader must be upfront about the facts, mindful of repercussions, and prepared to deal with the outcomes. The temptation to sugarcoat a message does not make a problem go away, it only makes it worse. Again, Baba Jasa Sangaluwalia and the Sikh Sardar showed a lot of integrity during the Vadaka Lukara. They were accountable, they held themselves accountable for what happened, they worked to improve themselves. And here's another incident that it said that once Baba Jasa Sangaluwalia dyed his beard. In Sikhi, we don't dye our beards or our hair. When they turn white, we accept Kudrat, nature. So old age being a part of nature, why hide it? And then someone actually called this out to the Panchpiyaras at Takal Takht and Baba Jasa Singaluwalia accepted punishment for this. Imagine that happening today. Would it happen today with any leader today, any Sikh leader? We have discussed loyalty as well. It's a two-way street. In order for loyalty to permeate an organization, it must go both ways. The secret is that loyalty is most effective when it is shown to subordinates first. When a group knows that leadership has their best interests at heart, they show gratitude and loyalty. A leader shows loyalty in the way he or she represents or leads the organization. Leaders are mindful of the workload they impose on their group and must be aware of inequities in the rate of effort. A good leader also ensures the group understands why a particular course of action has been taken. Now, look at Baba Jasa Singhaluwalia, loyal to the core. 
he actually never asked the Khalsa that day to do that which he wouldn't do himself. He was at the forefront loyally leading the Panth. Then we come to initiative. This is linked to motivation and leaders exhibited in a variety of ways. A good leader recognizes an opportunity when it presents, whether it has come by fortune or by design. Initiative is also linked to time as the correct decision made at the correct time can pay disproportionate dividends, as it did in the case of the Vadaka Lukara. In a year's time, the Sikhs were able to recoup and kick Abdali out of Punjab. At a basic level, a good leader evaluates the situation that presents itself before acting. Upon assuming command of a new group or organization or institution, leaders should seek to understand the capabilities of people in their care. They actively get to know their people, learn their strengths and capabilities, and take note of their weaknesses or areas to improve. With this in mind, they can best employ their force as time goes on. Leaders also take the initiative to develop their team to become better. They involve other members of the leadership team to make this happen. Which in turn develops their capabilities and performance. This is a form of continuous improvement. But improvements must be meaningful and not done for appearances sake. Of course a leader also needs to show initiative in a contested environment. Leaders should recognize and seek to exploit weakness in their adversary. And today's examples, purpose. The hacker can do this perhaps by filling a gap in a market, recruiting talent or innovating. As a leader, you want the upper hand, and the people in your care, you want them to have the upper hand as well. So if you see the Dal Khalsa system is developed by uh, Nwab Kapoor Singh, Nwab Kapoor Singh trained up Jassa Singhaluwali and several others. Baba Jassa Singhaluwali continued this tradition in the Panth. The initial stage was the Misaldar, then you came to, you know, being becoming a Sardar out of a Misaldar, then if you were uh, lucky enough from a Sardar, you went to Jatadar if you were voted in. So this the system kept on going on. This was the initiative. Initiative in the fact that, you know, while you're leading the Qom, the leading the Panth, you need to grasp the initiative to uh, confront the situations confronting the Panth and the Qom. But at the same time, you need to train the people under you to use their own initiative. And this was something which was effectively done uh, by Banda Singh Badr. If you look at it, Nwab Kapoor Singh was elected in a pretty cavalier fashion. But look at his initiative. He had enough initiative to take leadership of the Panth. And you can imagine how truthful Sardar Kapoor Singh's statement would be that at Nawab Kapoor Singh's time, the Khalsa was a fraternity of leaders. One died, another took his place. One died, another took her place. In this way, no leadership was ever found wanting. Leaders never ran out. And then we come to judgment. Judgment can be exercised in a variety of ways, and it's something we do you know, every day without even thinking about it. A leader must also exercise good tactical and strategic judgment. In the military, this means recognizing the correct time to take or not take a decisive action. And it's the same today. Baba Jasa Singhaluwalia's judgment as to his subordinate strength and what was happening, how best to deal with it, this judgment, quick judgment, and he stuck to it. So to recap those two points again, he showed a lot of initiative with the information at his disposal with what he could observe in actually getting the punt to start moving and not allow it to be flanked by the Afghans and valved by the Afghans. But at the same time, he had enough judgment to allow his subordinates, the other Sardars, to... He lent them a strategic vision. Look, we are in a circle. We need to keep on moving. But at the same time, he left it to the Sardars to command their own Misaldars to form a greater part of the strategy. So that was his judgment because he knew he had developed their initiative. And in his judgment, they were sound enough to take, out, take on their own judgment issues. And they did this effectively as well. And now we come to two 
of the last lessons from the Vardaka Lukara for leaders. The first one is ability to communicate. This is something every leader must master. Leaders have to communicate their ideas to a variety of audiences. First and foremost, they deliver direction, orders and guidance to the people who work for them. They seek their opinions and use their knowledge and expertise to come up with a sensible plan. Leaders collaborate with their peers to ensure they are working well. In concert and not in abetting each other's efforts. Lastly, they must engage their commanders on the direction, orders and guidance they receive. And when necessary, respectfully challenge their expectations and propose alternatives. This might be done verbally or in written form, but it is the manner in which it's delivered that makes the communication effective. Leaders need to get their ideas across in a way that brings everyone with them. They must be mindful of making adversaries when they're working to get people to understand, spot or execute their plan. The way Sardar Jassasangalu Walia communicated, pretty primitive compared today, compared to today, but it's possibly the most effective form of communication is face-to-face. It allowed him to gauge which individual was brave, which individual wasn't, what could be done, what couldn't be done. And his ability to communicate as the chief uh, paramount superior of the Panth also allowed his underlings to refine their own forms of communication. So as a leader, you must always allow your people, the institute you're leading, the organization, you must allow them to know what the general strategic vision is. And down here, Baba Jasa Singaluwalia pretty much said it, look, we need to keep on moving, we need to get to Bikaner or Barnala at least, we need to save as many Sikhs as possible, many of the Panth as possible. If there are those who fall behind and are enveloped by Afghans, we can't keep on wasting manpower and resources to get them. We must keep on moving. Time is of the essence. We must keep on going. Yes, even though this might have sounded callous to many who lost their families that day, his communication was clear. What he was aiming was for clear. It compelled people to follow him. And then yes, knowledge is the, knowledge is the aspect of leadership that underpins everything else. A leader needs to be in command of the relevant subject matter, but of course no single person can know everything. What's vital is to be aware of what you don't know and who you can ask to fill in your knowledge gap. And this requires humility and maturity. This is one of the most difficult things for a commander to do, especially if, she or, if he or she has been a soldier and worked as a specialist. But leaders and commanders manage a collective capability. Their speciality once they progress to the chain of commanders to know how best to employ the individuals and their individual capabilities in a collective environment. The collective knowledge they're charged with, managing for the group as their most powerful weapon. Another key piece of knowledge for a leader is the tactics and strategy they need to be successful. They must understand the battle space operating systems of friend and foe alike and seek to advantage their own at the same time as neutralizing the oppositions. Now, <clears throat> Commander Silly Jack. This, in short, is a military acronym. And this is a military acronym, which is a lesson we learned from the Vadaka Lukara, the leadership in the Vadaka Lukara, who was riding that Holocaust on February 1762. Of course, on many other podcasts, you learn about the spirit of the Sikhs, the passion of the Sikhs, the land of the Sikhs, the spirit, the corpse of the Sikhs, the morale of the Sikhs. You learn quite a lot, but we are focusing on developing future Sikh leaders. And while these might sound like cold, mundane, worldly lessons, these are the lessons which made our forefathers so effective. And while we haven't focused on the emotional aspect of the Vada Kalukara so much, what we aim to do with this episode, what we aim to do essentially with this talk, 
is that we want to present the fact that under such heavy oppressive duress, under such trying circumstances, it's war, people are being killed. Baba Jasa Singhalu Waliya, Jathedar Baba Jasa Singhalu Waliya and the Sikh Sardars refused to scumb to the psychological pressure on them, the physical pressure on them and instead kept on going as leaders and saved a majority of the Panth for the future. Even though we lost 50,000 martyrs, we survived and today we are able to pay tribute to them for their sacrifice. And this wasn't due to some mystical power in our, in our hands or some, you know, divine intervention. This was due to a capable leadership. So, to recap, these are the lessons we derive from the Vadaka Lukara. Courage, motivation, decisiveness, responsibility, selflessness, integrity, loyalty, initiative, judgment, ability to communicate, knowledge. These 11 make effective leaders. Commander Silijek, are we effective leaders? We need to learn to imbibe these traits in our daily lives and then we can talk about becoming effective leaders for the Panth. This is for the youth out there. Thank you for listening to us. Waheguruji ka khalsa, Waheguruji ki fateh.